0: this. Is the Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people are saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London
1: market close to the US market
0: action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. a historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson
1: on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5 p.m. Guy Johnson is away all week. He'll be back with us Monday. I'm very pleased to be back here in New York City after a full day over in Newport Beach, California with the team over at PIMCO. I'll bring you some highlights from my interviews with some of the team a little bit later in the program. To get you up to speed on the price action, the FTSE 100 does close the day higher on the session up by a half of 1%. In New York, it's been a little bit choppy. We were higher by around about a half of 1% on the S&P 500. Now we roll over with positive by just one-tenth of of 1%. Let's begin this program, shall we, by getting you some top stories. Let's say hello to Charlie Bell. Well,
2: hello there, Jonathan Farrell. Welcome back, and here's what's going on. President Trump says he might meet with Boris Johnson, the pro-Brexit frontrunner to replace Theresa May as Prime Minister when he visits the UK next week. The last time Trump visited the UK, you'll recall, back in July of 2018, he embarrassed May by saying Johnson will make a great Prime Minister shortly after Johnson quit his Foreign Secretary in protest against the Prime Minister's Brexit deal. Uber Technologies will be getting its first opportunity to address some of the concerns that contributed to a rocky Wall Street debut when it reports first quarter earnings in the United States after the close of trading. And J.P. Morgan Chase has agreed to pay $5 million to resolve a discrimination claim filed by a male employee who alleged the bank's parental leave policy was biased against Dads. The payout resolves a 2017 complaint brought by the American Civil Liberties Union alleging bias against Derek Rotondo who had applied unsuccessfully for the 16-week parental leave benefit available to employees who were the primary caregiver of a new kid.
0: That is the latest from the news desk. Jonathan Farrow, back to you. Charlie Pellet. thank you so much. Good to be back in a hot seat with you, Charlie. We'll be back with you in around about 29 minutes' time. The Federal Reserve Vice Chair, Richard Clarida, just revealing his remarks of a speech that's about to be delivered here in New York at the Economic Club of New York. My colleague, good friend, co-anchor Tom Keane, will be in the room, ready for the Q&A a little bit later. The remarks have come out before the speech is delivered across the Bloomberg saying the following, that the Fed policy reflects the view that inflation weakness is transitory. The Vice Chair, Richard Clarida, going on to say that the Fed is monitoring for persistent shortfall on inflation. But here's the kicker. Supply side expanded faster than expected in the first quarter. The economy is in a very good place, close to its dual mandate inflation is still muted but expectations remain stable as this speech and the remarks have dropped across the Bloomberg the equity market has turned lower on the Dow the S&P 500 is now pretty much unchanged on the session. We are not getting the dovish rhetoric by the senior figures at the FOMC. And at the moment, there looks like there's a big spread between what the Federal Reserve is set to deliver in terms of rate moves this year and what the market is looking for in terms of rate cuts. Let's have that conversation as we await to hear from the man himself, Rich Clarida. Alistair McKay dropping by to join us, Director of Investment Management at Fernwealth. Alongside him, Tim Craighead, Senior European Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. We wait with bated breath. Al, what are you listening for?
3: Yeah, uh, evening, Jonathan. Um, fairly um, uh, contrasting um, commentary or wording uh, from that statement. From pretty much what the markets are expecting. Two two rate cuts is, is now pretty much priced in uh, by the markets, or certainly has been. Um, and I think um, it just goes to show how quickly market sentiment towards the Fed. Direction and uh, pace of that direction can, can be affected. So, uh, you know, the, the markets have been quick to react or fairly quick to react in comparison to uh, previous years. So, uh, maybe we're, we're likely to see a, a rebalancing of where where we expect the rate path to be on the back of this.
0: Well, Tim, at the moment, there is a decent spread, a sizable spread between the median dot in the summary of economic projections at the Federal Reserve, where some individuals, the median of those individuals, believe rates will end the year. It's a rate hike. And this market right now, there's pricing at a series of rate cuts, not one, maybe two, but perhaps even three, Tim. Well, it, indeed, I guess our, our take on this is looking
4: at the yield curve. Um, you know, the yield curve is definitely not pricing, as we're talking, is not pricing in any sort of a, of a further hike. And um, you know, from that perspective, you know, the, the Fed quite often likes to see the market anticipating their moves as opposed to surprising the market with a move. And from that vantage point, you know, our economists are are thinking, you know, clearly um, we may be in different in,
0: in a different territory. I talked about this a little bit earlier on on blo- both Bloomberg TV and Bloomberg Radio. I'd love your insight on it too, Al. I found it really interesting to monitor this tug of war between viewing lower rates as a buffer for risk appetite versus viewing them as signaling something sinister. That tug of war, has really started to build up, intensified over the last couple of weeks. And I would say winning out in the last couple of days is the view that maybe the low rates in the Treasury market are signalling something sinister. And it really took a bizarre twist yesterday when we had this really soft seven-year Treasury auction and risk assets turned around off the back of it. And it just gave you an idea of just how much investor biases are shaped by Treasury price action at the moment, Al. Are you surprised by that? Is that something we need to monitor a little bit more closely?
3: I think when we look at uh, the fact that we've we've once again we're once again talking about inverse yield curves and we look at the fact that we're you know down at that sort of having twelve months ago six plus months ago being at three point two uh, it it's a fairly big um shift from from where we were. I still think that because of um the the, the high in unemployed, the high employment levels, I should say, um, that it does bring into doubt that the template that this, as a, a front-runner or a forewarning of recession, um, the inverse yield curve is maybe not as clear-cut as has been historically indicated. But I think it all goes to to show that uh, there's always two ways of, of reading any, um, any lie. Uh, uh, and, and I think at this point in time, the markets are, are jittery, not only because of the yield, but also for the length of the bull run we've had, the, the, the uncertainty that the political, the global political arena has. And all of that put together is just adding to, to the froth.
0: What do you think,
4: Tim? Yeah, I would totally concur uh, with, with Al from those perspectives. And, and I would add that you know the, the U.S.-China situation – is uncharted territories in a lot of in a lot of ways, and you know it's it 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 was it was not an easy thing to deal with and a shock to the system and everybody's investment you know beliefs and what have you when the initial. Um, uh tension emerged last year. I um, mean, clearly we've gone through fits and starts, but the thing that's important about the potential extension of this as we go forward, whether it's across all Chinese goods or whether it's rare earths from China being held back or what have you, is the farther we extend, the more real this gets. It's not just incidental issues that don't really have an impact broadly on the economy. It's things that actually start to bite a consumer or a corporate or what have you from the standpoint of real earnings or real income or jobs.
0: Yep, And there's a prospect of a US boycott to think about potentially in Chinese markets, which would be Something really severe for some of the big consumer makers that depend on China quite heavily. Tim, that's a conversation for another day. You're going to stick with us. Tim Craighead, Senior European Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, alongside Alistair McKay, Director of Investment Management at Fernwealth. Up next on the programme, we'll bring you the latest from Italy, where the leader of the League Party said his alliance with the anti-establishment five-star movement could last another four years, or it could be over Within three months, that conversation is coming up next. As the tension builds in Italy, I can tell you a little bit earlier on, it was infecting the euro. The euro right now, though, is positive. Euro-dollar is up by not even a tenth of 1%, 111.36. And in the bond market, just to get you up to speed on what is happening in Italy at the moment, Italian BTBs were bid. I can tell you at the end of the day, just a little bit softer. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. The Federal Reserve Vice Chair, Richard Clarida, taking the stage at the Economic Club of New York. He's beginning that speech I mentioned a little bit earlier. Let's take a listen.
1: Business cycles. In anticipation of that milestone, I would like to take stock of where the U.S. economy is today to assess its future trajectory, to review some important structural changes in the economy that have occurred over the past decade, and to explore what all of this might mean for U.S. monetary policy. The Federal Reserve has a specific mandate assigned to it in statute by the Congress, which is a dual mandate of maximum employment and price stability. As I speak to you today, the economy is as close to achieving both legs of this mandate as it has been in 20 years my colleagues and I understand that our responsibility is to conduct a monetary policy that not only is supportive of and consistent with achieving maximum employment and price stability but also once achieved is appropriate nimble and consistent with sustaining maximum employment and price stability for as long as possible and thus the title of my talk today is sustaining maximum employment and price stability Midway through the second quarter of 2019, the US economy is in a good place. Over the past four quarters, GDP growth has averaged 3.2%, which compares with an average growth rate of 2.3% since the recovery began in 2009. By most estimates, fiscal policy played an important role in boosting growth in 2018. And I expect the fiscal policies will continue to support growth in 2019. Over that same four quarters, the unemployment rate has averaged 3.8% and the most recent reading of 3.6% is near its lowest level in 50 years. Moreover, average monthly job gains have continued to outpace the increases needed to provide jobs for new entrants to the labor force. Wages have been rising broadly in line with productivity and prices and thus at present do not signal rising cost push pressure. Notwithstanding strong growth and low unemployment, U.S. inflation remains muted and inflation expectations, according to a variety of measures, continue to be stable. In our March summary of economic projections, the median projection of FOMC participants was for GDP growth to average around 2% over the next three years, for PCE inflation to rise gradually to 2%, and for the unemployment rate to edge up to 3.9%. Before I discuss the outlook for monetary policy, allow me to review some important structural changes that have taken place in our economy over the past decade and that will be particularly relevant for future monetary policy decisions. Perhaps the most significant structural change relevant to monetary policy is that the real neutral rate of interest consistent with full employment and price stability, often referred to as R-star, appears to have fallen in the U.S. and abroad from more than 2 percent before the crisis to less than 1 percent today. The decline in neutral policy rates likely reflects several factors, including aging populations, higher private saving, a greater demand for safe assets, and a slowdown in global productivity growth. The policy implications of the decline in neutral rates are important. All else equal, a lower neutral rate increases the likelihood that a central bank's policy rate will reach its effective lower bound in a future downturn. Such a development in turn could make it more difficult during a future downturn for monetary policy to provide sufficient accommodation to rapidly return employment and inflation to mandate consistent levels. Another important potential change in the US economy has been the steady decline in estimates of the structural rate of unemployment consistent with maximum employment, often referred to as U STAR. This decline in U STAR may be due in part to higher educational attainment and a larger proportion of older workers in the workforce today relative to past decades. If U-star is lower than historical estimates suggest, this would imply that even with today's historically low unemployment rate, the labor market would not be as tight and inflationary pressures would not be as strong as one would expect based upon historical estimates of U-star. Indeed, I believe that the range of plausible estimates for U-star may extend to 4% or even below. I also note that the decline in the unemployment rate in recent years has been pronounced by an increase in prime age labor force participation. It has also been accompanied since 2014 by a rise in labor share of national income. As I have documented previously in the past several U.S. business cycles, labor share has risen in those expansions because workers command higher wages in a stronger labor market and notably in those cycles the rise in labor share did not pass through to faster price inflation. Now the previously mentioned increase in prime age participation has provided employers with a source of additional labor input and has been one factor restraining inflationary pressures. Notwithstanding these recent gains, prime age participation rates remain somewhat below levels achieved in the 1990s and may still have some more room to run. If so, then potential output could be higher than many current estimates suggest. Over the past few years, we've also seen evidence of a pickup in U.S. productivity growth, albeit from a very depressed average pace that prevailed throughout most of the expansion. Indeed, as of the first quarter of this year, productivity in the non-farm business sector rose 2.4% over the previous four quarters, its fastest pace since 2010 when the economy was coming out of the Great Recession. By contrast, in both the 2001 to 2007 cycle and the 82 to 90 expansion, productivity growth was actually slowing relative to its average pace during those expansions. Now, that said, while identifying inflection points in trend productivity growth in real time is notoriously difficult, A pickup in trend productivity growth relative to the pace that prevailed earlier in the expansion is a possibility that we should not, I believe, dismiss. Another structural change relevant for monetary policy is that price inflation appears less responsive to resource slack than it did in the past. That is, the short run price Phillips curve appears to have flattened, implying a change in the dynamic relationship between inflation and employment. A flatter price Phillips curve is, in essence, a proverbial double-edged sword. It permits the Fed to support employment more aggressively during downturns, as was the case in the Great Recession, because a sustained inflation breakout is less likely when the Phillips curve is flatter. However, a flatter Phillips curve also increases the cost in terms of economic output of reversing unwelcome increases in longer-run inflation expectations. Thus a flatter Phillips curve makes it all the more important that longer-run inflation expectations remain anchored at levels consistent with our 2% inflation objective. Now textbook macroeconomics teaches us that understanding the economy and getting monetary policy right requires that we do our best to understand if, and if so how, the forces of aggregate demand and supply are evolving relative to historical experience and the predictions of our models. While predicting the future is of course difficult, with available data, it does appear that in 2018 and in the first quarter of 2019, the supply side of the economy, employment, participation, and productivity expanded faster than most forecasters outside and inside the Fed expected. Notwithstanding robust growth and demand over those five quarters, PCE price inflation in the U.S. actually fell somewhat short of the Fed's 2% objective. So with this background, let me now turn to the outlook for U.S. monetary policy. As I mentioned earlier, my colleagues and I on the committee understand that our priority today is to put in place policies that will help sustain maximum employment and price stability in an economy that appears to be operating close to both of these objectives. In our most recent statements, we have indicated that, quote, the committee will be patient as it determines what future adjustments to the federal funds rate may be appropriate to support these objectives. What does this mean in practice? To me, it means that we should allow the data on the economy to flow in and inform our monetary policy decisions. I believe that the path for the federal funds rate should be data dependent for two distinct reasons. Monetary policy should be data dependent in the sense that incoming data reveal at any point in time where the economy is relative to the ultimate objectives of price stability and maximum employment. This information on where the economy is relative to the goals of policy is an important input into interest rate feedback rules. Data dependence, in this sense, is well understood, as it is of the type implied by a large family of policy rules, including Taylor-type rules, in which the parameters of the economy needed to formulate such rules are taken as known. But of course, in the real world, the key parameters needed to formulate policies, such as U star and R star, are unknown. As a result, in the real world, monetary policy should be, and in the US I believe is, Data dependent, in a second sense, policymakers should and do study incoming data and use models to extract signals that have helped them to update and improve their estimates of r star and u star. Consistent with my earlier discussion, the committee's summary of economic projections has indicated that over the past seven years, the committee repeatedly has revised down its estimates of both u star and r star as unemployment fell and real interest rates remained well below previous estimates of neutral without the rise in inflation those earlier estimates would have predicted. And these revisions to u and R-star appeared to have had an important influence on the path for the policy rate actually implemented in recent years. In addition to u and R-star, another important input into any monetary policy assessment is the state of inflation expectations. Indeed, I believe that price stability requires that not only actual inflation be centered at our 2% objective, but also that expected inflation be equal to our 2% objective. Now, unlike realized inflation, inflation expectations themselves are not observable, and they must be inferred from econometric models, market prices, and surveys of households and firms. As I myself assess the totality of all the evidence, I judge that at present indicators suggest to me that longer term inflation expectations sit at the low end of a range that I myself consistent with our price stability mandate. So where does this leave us today? As I already noted, the US economy is in a very good place with the unemployment rate near a 50 year low, with inflationary pressures muted, with expected inflation stable and with GDP growth solid and projected to remain so. Moreover, the federal funds rate is now in the range of estimates of its longer-run neutral level, and the unemployment rate is not far below many estimates of U-star. So plugging these in, inputs into a 1993 Taylor-type rule produces a federal funds rate between two and a quarter and 2.5%, and which is in the range for the policy rate that the FOMC has reaffirmed since our January meeting. Most recently, the committee judged at our May meeting that the current stance of policy remains appropriate, and that decision reflected our view that some of the softness in recent inflation data will prove to be transitory. This judgment aligns with some private sector forecasts which also project that PCE inflation will return to 2% by next year. However, if the incoming data were to show a persistent shortfall in inflation below our 2% objective, or were to indicate that global economic and financial developments present a material downside risk to our baseline outlook, then these are developments that the committee would take into account in assessing the appropriate stance for monetary policy. Let me talk a bit about the balance sheet. Since the beginning of the year, the committee has made several important decisions about how it will implement policy and how it will conclude the process of normalizing the size of its balance sheet. These decisions have been made over several meetings and have been part of an ongoing process of committee deliberations. Please allow me to summarize them now. The committee decided at its January meeting to continue to implement policy in a regime with an ample supply of reserves, a regime sometimes referred to as a floor system. Such a system, which has been in place since 2008, does not require the active management of reserves through daily open market operations. Instead, with an ample level of reserves in the banking system, the effective federal funds rate will settle at or slightly above the rate of interest paid on excess reserves. Now this system has proven to be an efficient means of setting the policy rate and effectively transmitting the stance of policy to a wide array of money market instruments and to broader financial conditions. The committee continues to view the target range for the federal funds rate as its primary means of adjusting and communicating the stance of monetary policy, although in doing so we must and do take into account how our balance sheet size, composition, and trajectory impact broader financial conditions. And as we stated in January, although adjustments in the target range for the federal funds rate are our primary tool for adjusting the stance of monetary policy, we are prepared to adjust the details of our plans for the balance sheet based upon economic and financial developments. At its March meeting, the committee announced that it would allow the pace of the runoff of the security holdings in its portfolio, and that it plans to cease the balance sheet runoff entirely by September of this year. Since starting the process of balance sheet normalization in 2017, the Federal Reserve's portfolio has shrunk by about $500 billion, and the level of reserve balances declined by about $700 billion. Consistent with our decision in March, we began to slow the pace of runoff in our balance sheet earlier this month. When the process of normalizing the size of our balance sheet concludes in September of this year, we expect that our reserve liabilities will, for a time, likely remain somewhat above the level necessary for an efficient and effective implementation of monetary policy. If so, we plan, after September, to hold the size of our holdings constant for a while. And during this period, reserve balances will continue to decline gradually as currency and other non-reserve liabilities increase. At the point that the committee judges that reserve balances have declined to a level consistent with the efficient and effective implementation of monetary policy, we plan to resume periodic open market operations to accommodate the normal trend growth and the demand for our liabilities. As balance sheet normalization has progressed, the effective federal funds rate has firmed relative to the interest rate we pay on excess reserves. Last year, after the funds rate moved up to the closer top of the target range set by the committee, we made technical adjustments in our operations by lowering the IOER rate relative to the top of the range by five basis points in June and again in December of 2018. At our May meeting, we made another technical adjustment in the IOER rate, reducing it by another five basis points to 2.35%. Since then, the effective federal funds rate has been trading close to the level where it began the year. Before I conclude my prepared remarks, allow me to say a few words about the review of our monetary policy strategy, tools, and communication practices that we are undertaking this year at the Fed. Now while we believe that our existing approach to conducting monetary policy has served the public well, the purpose of this review is to evaluate and assess possible refinements that might help us best achieve our dual mandate objectives on a sustained basis. With the U.S. economy operating at or close to our maximum employment and price stability goals, now is an especially opportune time to conduct this review. We want to ensure that we are well positioned to continue to meet our statutory goals in coming years. Furthermore, the shifts in R-Star and U-Star, as well as the flattening of the Phillips curve, suggest that U.S. and foreign economies have evolved in significant ways relative to the pre-crisis experience. The Federal Reserve System is currently conducting town hall-style Fed Listens events in which we are hearing from a broad range of interested individuals and groups, including business and labor leaders, community development advocates, and academics. In addition, we are holding a system research conference next week at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago that will feature speakers and panelists from outside of the Federal Reserve System. Building on those perspectives that we hear and staff analysis, the committee will conduct its own assessment of its monetary policy framework throughout the rest of this year Um, and we will share our conclusions with the public in the first half of next year. In sum, the economy is constantly evolving, bringing with it new policy challenges and so it makes sense for us to remain open-minded as we assess current practice and consider ideas that could potentially enhance our ability to deliver on the goals that Congress has assigned to us. For this reason, my colleagues and I do not want to prejudge or predict our ultimate findings. But what I can say is that any refinements or more material changes to our framework that we might make will be aimed solely at enhancing our ability to achieve and sustain our policy objectives of maximum employment and stable prices. Thank you very much, and I look forward to my conversation with Peter. Thank you.
5: Thank you, Rich, for a really stimulating and informative set of remarks. You know, it's, as you think about uh, where we are in the economy and you give a terrific overview, think back to the end of 2018, we had incredible volatility in markets. Yeah. Beginning of the year, market seemed to stabilize and recover. And we're now back in a period which feels starting to feel a little bit choppy again and we've got major global trade tensions. Could you just speak a little bit how you think uh, at the FOMC, and from your perch, yeah, about these data and 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 how that affects your outlook.
1: Well, Peter, you are right. There's a lot to keep track of on my uh, my Bloomberg <laughs> screen uh, in the mornings, and those are several of the items that that we're looking at. Let me say a couple of things on that. You know, first of all, as I indicated in my uh, remarks, you know, the economy is in a good place, and our baseline outlook is very constructive, solid growth, strong labor market, uh, gradual rise uh, in inflation. Uh, however, let me be very clear that, you know, we're attuned to potential risk uh, to the outlook. Uh, and if we saw a downside risk to the uh, outlook, uh, then that would be a factor that could call for a more accommodative policy. And so that's definitely something in the risk management uh, area that we would think about.
5: So as you think about that, and just to generalize the question even more, over the past year, sort of, sort of four interest rate increases. Yeah. You talked about U-Star, talked about R-Star, uh, and your general uh, approach to sort of d- data dependency. What are, to the extent you can talk about, it, what are some specific changes in the data? Because it, it, it seems that there's been a change in the, the priors were strongly leaning towards more rate increases. Yeah. And... As a famous economist once said, the facts change. When the facts change, I change my mind. Sir, what do you do? Yeah. And it seems that you guys have changed your minds a bit. What are some of the data that have specifically that have led you to sort of change your predisposition?
1: Well, I, I would point to a couple of factors. And here, I think that the discussion in the speech about um, you know, thinking about <clears throat> reaction functions is useful. Yep. Obviously, we're not handcuffed to any one particular mathematical formula, but it's useful to think about what, is, what has happened in the data. And what we see, in fact, is U.S. inflation has been coming in Uh, lower than we expected and lower than many private forecasters expected. I mean, year-over-year, PCE inflation is running at about 1.6 right right now, which is softer than we expected um, uh, last year. I think the other development, Peter, that's very relevant uh, to the Fed, um, if you just go back and look at uh, where folks were thinking about the global outlook a year or so ago, we've pretty, pretty significant slowdown um, in the growth forecast for the global economy in say the last nine months. Now it is true, as both you and I know as international macroeconomists, the US is not the most open economy in the world, mm-hmm. but when there is a slowdown in the rest of the world, it does show up um, in our, our data. So I, those are the two things I'd really point to. The inflation data has just been softer. Uh, We think some of that, a lot of that may be transitory, but the reality is it has been softer and the global economy outlook has been marked down relative to last fall as well.
5: You put your finger on something I think which is really interesting, which I think is somewhat underappreciated, which is the global slowdown or slowing, it's not called a slowdown, it's slowing, slowing is related to some of the structural issues that you talked about. So we've seen relatively little, frankly, kind of major economic reforms uh, in the last five, ten years, putting aside kind of quantitative easing and on the monetary side. Yes. And so from your perspective, um, it's interesting that you're going out now and and talking to stakeholders about how they're seeing the economy. Um, It seems from my perspective, I want to hear from your perspective, that the public, generally speaking, has become overly reliant, if you will, on monetary policymakers to drive growth. Yeah. There's a lot that needs to happen on the structural side that frankly isn't related to monetary policy. What's What are your
1: Peter, thoughts? Peter, I think, I think that's an excellent point. Um, and I think part of the goal of these Fed listens Events is so we can have a two-way conversation about the sorts of things that the Fed is charged by Congress mm-hmm. to focus on and what our tools can accomplish. But also, as you mentioned, there are a lot of structural uh, challenges, and really those are in the domain of, you know, of, of, of the Congress and the President in terms of economic policy. And certainly we try to focus on you know, what is in our domain, which is, is monetary policy. Uh, but you are correct, I think, in part because of the severity of the global recession and the actions taken by the Fed and other central banks. You know, there may be this view that the, the mandate of central banks is, is expanded more broadly. Uh, and certainly at the Fed, we're very focused on what our job is, which is maximum employment and price stability. And, Try not to wander into those other yeah. conversations. Good to, good to stay focused.
5: <laughs> what, speaking of focus, I want to t- ask a question which came in through the uh, ECNY portal, uh-huh. because it touches on something that you uh, talked about in your speech, and the question is the following. Is the Federal Reserve concerned about the inversion of the EFF, I like guess so the effective federal funds rate, over the IOER, interest on excess reserves? Question mark You talked about it. Are you, are you concerned about this inversion?
1: I wouldn't use the word concerned. What what we understand is that there have been major changes in the US financial system in the last uh, decade. Um, And one of them that's very relevant to this particular topic is that for a variety of very sound reasons, uh, banks hold a lot more liquid assets than they did before the crisis. Um, Now, reserves are not a unique liquid asset. Treasury bills are also a liquid asset. But one of the things that we've learned at the Fed as we've operated our current ample reserve system, is that the desire of banks in the U.S. to hold a large quantity of reserves for liquidity purposes is is stronger than we would have thought a couple of years ago. And what that means is that even though the size of the balance sheet is certainly, uh, you know, certainly large, much larger than it was before the crisis, uh, we are at a point now where in the federal funds market, the sort of market clearing funds rate is no longer always going to be equal to that floor level. It does pop a basis point or two above, and it's certainly something that we watch. And as I mentioned our, in our remarks, we've made some technical adjustments to our framework. So I wouldn't say that we're concerned, but we're, we're alert to the fact that the U.S. financial s- system demands a lot of liquid assets right. and reserves, and that's going to be a factor in terms of implementing policy.
5: Got it. I want to ask you uh, another question related to, to financial market, market conditions, and to your broader point about... Underlying changes in the structure of the US economy and the, and the, to the extent with, to which we can rely on you know, sort of parameters which have been stable in the past yeah. may be changed. So think about the yield curve. Yeah. Uh, as you know, well know, and folks in this, in this room know, <laughs> uh, the inversion of the yield curve historically has predicted slowdowns. Uh, so we've, you know, we've recently seen, as recently as March, I haven't looked at uh, today's data, yeah. you know, an inversion in the yield curve. Is that a relationship that you still have in the forefront of your mind to the FOMC, um, or do you think that's another p- potential sort of underlying sort of structural change yeah. that's, that's taking place? Well,
1: it's a good point, and I think that my own personal view on this is I certainly pay attention and look at, at, at the yield curve. I, I tend to distinguish between a flat curve and a, and a curve that is inverted and remains inverted for a period of time. You know, we really haven't seen that yet. We've right. had some brief right. um, inversions. And I think it's important for us to understand why the curve flattens or uh, inverts. That can occur for different uh, reasons. I interpret a lot of the recent flattening of the curve as related to some of the global and financial developments I alluded to uh, earlier, but it's certainly something that we're that we're alert to. It's you know we don't just focus on that exclusively. There are a wide range of of, of, of indicators, but but certainly it's something that's relevant as we consider appropriate policy.
5: Question I, I want to ask you as as a, as a fellow academic, yeah. sort of traveler. Um, one of the yeah, I, I alluded to you having been chair of the, the Columbia Economics Department It's probably the hardest job you've had in your <laughs> life. For those of us who in academia, understand that it's. Very you were difficult. a dean. Though. Yeah, I was dean, and I, I, I had black hair before I was dean. I'm, I'm gray. So, but you uh, operate by consensus at the Fed. Talk to us, if you will, just a little bit. In your role as vice chair about leadership and how you go about marshaling data to, to drive conversations yeah. versus versus you know facts versus. Feelings in human beings, how do, how, do you, how, do you, how do you play that role?
1: Well, thank you. I, I'm, I'm flattered that you would ask, because by Fed standards, I'm still relatively a rookie. I, <laughs> I, I, I've only been in the job since last, um, last September. So I have only a few data points, but maybe a couple of initial impressions as someone who was a student of monetary policy for 35 uh, years. Uh, I have found uh, refreshingly that I think that the committee structure actually is is very effective. And to be honest, more effective than I might have thought as a Fed watcher mm-hmm. on the outside. We have an excellent group of Reserve Bank presidents who bring uh, very important uh, perspectives, um, um, and obviously we have a complement now of, of five of governors um, and. Luckily, the transcripts come out with a five-year lag, and so people who are interested can read. Um, but I would say that, that, that um, so far, all of the decisions that we've made in my brief time at the Fed have been unanimous. Uh, so obviously, we've been able, the, the PAL Fed has been able to achieve that. That's not required. Obviously, there, there, historically, there are dissents. There may well be dissents in the future. Uh, but I think you are correct, Peter, that there is a culture at the Fed of, of, of collegiality and trying to seek uh, a common... Uh, uh, common ground, um, uh, but in terms of facts and evidence and data, uh, you know, we're 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 really policy and data wonks in the in the building, and we have models. I think maybe as an aside, one of the things that I have that's occurred to me in my time at the board is, as someone who developed a lot of models as an academic, I do think they have a use. They're a starting point, but they're not a destination, and ultimately. We've got to make policy based upon where the economy is today and where we think it's going, not upon what a model estimated over old data indicates. And so there's probably more judgment required than you would think as a professor drawing equations on the board. But I think that the committee structure really uh, promotes uh, good judgment in that case.
5: Speaking of new data and new changes, I mean, one of the things that's really, I think, very sort of uncharted in some sense is just the way sort of price formation in a digital yeah. economy. Wow. been a lot of conversation about, you know, whether uh PC remains low just because there's more competition online, Amazon effect and so forth. If you would, just takes a little yeah. inside the kind of the... Debates and, the, and the, the sifting through of data at the Fed as you think, of, think through. No,
1: this issue. we're 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 thinking through that. Uh, we're being briefed on it, and of course, what we try to Peter to do is distinguish between you know level effects and inflation effect. And so, if you have an increase in composition or the web lowers prices once and for all, that's not really disinflationary. It's a one-off effect. Um, there's some evidence that that effect is there. It's it's more difficult to tease out whether or not there's an Underlying downward pressure on inflation from that, but it could be, and we're certainly looking at that uh, as our, you know, folks outside of the Federal Reserve system, because ultimately, you know, our 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 task is price stability, um, and if there is that is that factor that's impacting inflation, we need to try to understand it as well as we. Of course, another factor that you and I discussed on previous occasions is we can't dismiss the fact that the globalization of right. of the U.S. economy integrated into the world's had a significant impact. I think if you just you know think back to you know the economy 40 or 50 years ago, which was less open to trade and outsourcing right. and supply chains, that's obviously had a big uh, factor as well, and we need to be alert to that. So.
5: Tacking from financial conditions to, to labor markets for a second, you yeah. you, you mentioned uh, labor market participation, uh, the wage data is it's getting better, yeah. it's in line with productivity growth and so forth. But there's a lot of talk about the about the, about the U.S. worker. From all the data that you've seen, your staff has seen, your teams have seen. What's your what's your sort of underlying sense, if you will, of the, the, the 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 structure with respect to the to the to the, to the U.S. worker? Uh, is productivity really kind of uh, these productivity gains? They seem to be broad in the sense of uh, affecting a lot of U.S. workers in a positive way, or is there still sort of unevenness and sort of the, a barbell economy that people have referred to?
1: I think I think that is relevant, and that's something that we 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 try to to think hard about at, at the board. Is you know we have a limited set of system, Federal Reserve system. You know we we have a pretty limited. A, a, a toolkit, and it tends to be have an impact on aggregate and average variables. It's, um, and obviously there are a lot of dimensions to the labor market in terms of who shares in the gains for more productivity, the distribution, distributional effects. Um, and I should say that just in the time I've been there that the staff has been spending more uh, effort to to get at that, and in some cases with some data that didn't exist, which I think the board will be putting up and make, other, make available uh, uh, to others. Um, so I think, I think that is relevant, and part of the Fed Listens events, that, mm-hmm. that, that the benefit of those is, uh, is, is that we hear from folks in different parts of the labor market and how uh, a robust economy is either benefiting or not benefiting them. So that's an important perspective. But again, within the context of a, a pretty limited toolkit that mm-hmm. tends to impact average or aggregate variables
5: really applaud you for that, the broader listening tour you're, you're doing. I think it's yeah. really, really important. I've hear.
1: done five of them. Yeah. <laughs> Seven more to go, my colleagues and I will be doing. And they're all great. Good for you. Yeah.
5: So uh, let me come to uh, the last question here, which is uh, a question which came in again from a member. And it's a, it's a big question. Okay. Do you think the Federal Reserve is capable of eliminating the economic cycle?
1: Well, <laughs> um, Honesty compels me to say no I, 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 uh, business, you know as a student of, of macroeconomics you know, as far back as we have data, there have been business cycles and past centuries they were caused by weather and other factors right. but but the cycle is sort of a common of economic activity. I may have one or two folks here who hail from Australia. I acknowledge Australia has gone 28 years without a recession, but even the Australian economists I talk to don't think that they've ruled out the business cycle. So, you know, the Fed's job and policy job uh, more broadly um, is to take a view on full employment and price stability and to provide assistance to nudge the economy in those directions, but ultimately there's still, there's ultimately still going to be a cycle that we'll have to confront and think about.
5: Well, Rich, we're a little disappointed you can't solve all business <laughs> cycle problems. <laughs> all right. But we're delighted that you spent uh, time with us here today. Your remarks were really insightful. We wish you luck and thank you for the, the leadership you're providing and the work you're doing.
1: Thank you, Peter. <clears throat> thank, you. thank you. Thank you. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy
0: Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Guy Johnson, not with me. He'll be back on Monday. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You have been listening to the Fed Vice Chair, Richard Clarida, delivering remarks here in New York at the Economic Club in New York. The latest remarks, I've got to say, from Richard Clarida, fairly supportive of risk assets. If you listen to what he had to say, he had to say that this uh, Federal Reserve isn't going Anywhere Anytime Soon was essentially the message when you really think about it, and that to me doesn't sound too hawkish. I guess it depends on what you're comparing it to. Relative to the very, very dovish pricing in the rates market, then maybe it is a tad hawkish because it does not sound like this is a Federal Reserve that's going to deliver rate cuts anytime soon. Though from my perspective, I sit here and think, well also, it doesn't sound like a Federal Reserve that's going to deliver rate hikes anymore either. The idea that the Fed is going nowhere, it's in neutral, I think is an idea, an argument that a lot of people are sympathetic to. In the markets in response to all of this, the Market in New York, it's a little bit firmer. The S and P 500 up a third of one percent, climbing through the Q and A portion of that conversation with the Federal Reserve Vice Chair. At the close today, the FTSE 100 positive, almost a half of one percent. In the bond market, this is how we absorb the latest comments from the Fed. Yields lower by two basis points to just south of two point one percent at two point zero eight seven percent. On a 10-year note, we come in a basis point to 2.245%. Some really interesting conversations in Newport Beach, California, at PIMCO's global headquarters recently. I managed to catch up with Joaquin Faust, the global economic advisor at PIMCO, and Scott Mather, U.S. Core Strategies Chief Investment Officer at their headquarters. We talked about their secular outlook, and we had a conversation on corporate credit take a listen to what the and I think
6: say. what's new is that we are seeing the end of an era the last five to ten years we had massive outperformance of financial assets over the real economy and we think that era is coming to an end and we think that we are now entering an age of disruption um, there are several secular forces that we think will disrupt the global economy financial markets investors portfolios over the next three to five years which is our secular horizon And we think investors need to get prepared for this. This is why the title of our outlook is dealing with disruption.
0: So we're going to talk about the five disruptors in just a moment, Scott. What I think is interesting, just going on the last five to ten years, you guys underline this in the piece. It would be a mistake to extrapolate forward the benign macro market environment of the last five to ten years and push that out in a forecast for, say, the next three to five years. Why is that such a big mistake
7: this time around? Well, it seems like markets have, uh, have become used to an environment where central banks are really powerful in terms of uh, taking the volatility out of the market and pumping asset prices up. And one of the uh, things we talk about in the secular outlook is that, you know, that area is, co- is coming to an end. I mean, the U.S. is about the only central bank that was able to normalize policy rates, but elsewhere, there's basically no monetary firepower left. And so it's a very different environment uh, for financial market investors. At the same time, everywhere we've seen weakness in, in, in the global growth outlook, uh, we still think that people are probably too optimistic about the growth outlook in the U.S., and I think that's what you're seeing in markets now, people starting to come to a more realistic outlook about both the forward-looking growth uh, prospects as well as the power of central banks to uh, pump up asset prices. Well, let's
0: talk about the forward-looking growth prospects. In this piece, you are assuming a slight mild recession in the United States. Joaquin, Walk me through that base case for the team at PIMCO?
6: Yeah. Well, first of all, our base case for the average of the next five years is we see a continuation of lacklustre growth, low inflation, and low new neutral interest rates. But within that period, at some stage, we think there will be a recession. Now, what kind of recession? Well, we think it will be relatively shallow. Why is that? Well, it's because we don't see major imbalances in the real economy at the moment. Um, But we also think the following recovery could be very sluggish because central banks do not have many tools left in their toolkit and fiscal policy may be late to respond. So um, it's going to be more of a garden variety recession, but again, it could be somewhat longer and the following recovery could be more shallow.
0: You know, as I work through these disruptors that are in the epicentre of the piece you guys have put out, number five is market vulnerabilities. And Scott, I want to talk to you about that. The recession might be mild, but the market action, the price action, could be anything but. Your thoughts on that?
7: Well, a few different things. One, as I mentioned before, there's no hedge to risky assets other than U.S. high-quality bonds, treasuries. Uh, And that's a very different starting place than we were at in the last recession, where there was lots of places to look for uh, protection or negatively correlated asset to risky assets. Uh, So that's one thing. I mean, the other thing is we have probably the riskiest credit market that we've ever had. And, you know, it's true when you look at both the, the size of it the duration yeah. of it and the quality aspects of it. So there's a big vulnerability there, as well as a probably the least liquid uh, you know, bond market in terms of credit markets that we've had in a long period of time. So that's a major vulnerability as well.
0: So two pieces from what you've just talked about I want to pick out on. First is the potential that the financial markets become the news, in the, in the piece itself, you've quoted the following. We must be very attentive to the risk, as one of our senior investment professionals described it, that instead of reacting to the news, there's financial markets that make the news Talk to me about that change.
6: Yeah. Well, I think what we need to consider is that the last two recessions were not caused by major economic imbalances or an overheating in the, in the real economy. They were caused by financial excesses that had to be corrected. And we think that could well be the case uh, in the next downturn. So what we worry about is that we've seen a major dovish shift from the Fed uh, beginning of this year. And this may set us up for the building up of excesses in financial markets over the next few years, especially if we remain in this new neutral, low interest rate environment. There will continue to be a search for yield, so investors will move on and on into riskier assets. And so you could see these excesses building, and once they correct, they could have negative repercussions for the real economy
0: really interesting conversations with the team at PIMCO just yesterday at their global headquarters in Newport Beach, California. That was whacking fouls at the end there alongside Scott Mather. Much more on the Bloomberg Terminal and on Bloomberg.com. That does it for me today just to get you up to speed on some of the price action here in New York City and at the close in London. On the FTSE 100, we were positive by almost a half of 1%. The enthusiasm building up just a little bit. I've got to say a Federal Reserve Vice Chair that didn't have anything to say that really takes a chunk out of this market, at least the the Q&A portion of the conversation. The S&P 500 positive a third of 1%. From New York for London, this has been The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio.